strange names too. I want to get those names sorted out. Abridged and not pulling the wool over our eyes on that thing. Uh, good to be here this morning, isn't it? You all glad to be here? Not like those people in Malachi's day who were bored and cynical. I hope no one like that here this morning. Okay. Uh, this is, uh, for those who know about these things, this is the season of Advent. Speaking about the coming, preparing for Christmas. And the special prayer for the second Sunday in Advent, some of you will be familiar with. I'm going to pray that prayer now. Let's bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so in such wise to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and encouragement from your holy word, we may embrace and always hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which thou hast given us, in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Blessed Hope. This morning I want to talk about the theme of living in the light of the end as we come to the last of our series of messages from the book Malachi. And people say, whew, I thought it was never going to come to an end. It has going to come to an end. Not only do we come to the end of Malachi, we come to the end of the Old Testament. And two words stand out in the reading this morning. I don't know if you picked up on these. Maybe there's more than two words, but two words struck me particularly. The first word's the words healing, a really positive word. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, a wonderful uh, indication that even in the prophets, how to speak against the sin of God's people, always a note of hope, always a note of encouragement. But the other word is the last word in our text, the word curse. Not a happy note to finish the Old Testament on, isn't it? Whatever else it says is, God's revelation is not complete. There's a whole lot of incompleteness when you get to the, old, the end of the Old Testament. And of course it points us forward to the new. As someone has said, the old concealed in the new revealed. So when we come to the New Testament, we see all those complex things answered in a sense. Now, not all of them answered, of course, because we won't know the full answer until the end time. When we stand before the Lord Jesus and see him face to face and all those nagging questions we might have had will sort of all fall into place. It'll all make sense then. And uh, the end, the goal of all history, the Greek word is the word telos, meaning not end in sense of a full stop, but the goal of all history is in the summation of all things which you read about in the book of Revelation. It was, uh, it was the philosopher uh, Aristotle who said, the nature of a thing is determined by its end, its goal. You can't make sense of anything until you actually stand in that position and look back and then it will all make sense. So if you're here this morning, have confusions, doubts, concerns, maybe even like the people of uh, Malachi's day, a little bit disillusioned, disappointed, look forward to the end. God will have the final word. Everything will be clear when we can see things from the perspective of God's final word to the human race. Now, for those of you who have been coming to church regularly over the past few weeks, you'll have noted we've come to know our friend Malachi. Some would call him Malachi. Whatever your expression, whatever your pronunciation, it doesn't really matter. To put him in his historical context, he conducted his ministry between 440 and 430 B.C., as he prophesied to the Jews who had returned from captivity in Babylon. The first return, of course, had occurred around 538 BC after the 
the punishment, the judgment on the nation. And that occasion, some 50,000 returned. And then there was a second return under Ezra, around 458. About 5,000 returned then. And then finally, the third return in 445 BC. Malachi is prophesying just at the end of that phase. That is, a hundred years have elapsed since the return from the exile. We might find ourselves asking, I wonder if they've learnt the lesson of the punishments which they had to endure by captivity in Babylon. Seventy years of captivity. Had they learnt the lesson? I want you to think about what it would be like a hundred years ago. Not many of us were around a hundred years ago, but maybe one or two. Talked to Joan Campanoli in the early service this morning. She she just about registered for that. Still going strong, loving the Lord, absolutely confident in him, standing firm. 1915, long time ago. wonder if we've learnt the lessons from the Great War. We learnt the lessons of the past hundred years. Or do we still make the same mistakes? For that was the tragedy of the people of Malachi's day. In spite of all that had happened, all that they had to endure through being wrenched from their own land, here they are back in the land and it seems like they have not learnt the lesson. There are some good things that happened. Zerubbabel had come and there'd been a rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel. But this temple was nothing like the former temple, nothing like the great glory days of David and, uh, and Solomon. Indeed, uh, that wonderful golden era, whatever they were experiencing now, seemed like a pale reflection of that. So when the people returned, they may have had hopes and dreams of a fresh start, even of a, a new golden age, something like akin to the great high point in Israelite history. But there was to be no golden age. And did all the hopes of Israel that they'd be some superpower who would cr- crush the nations all around them, that was all in vain. Great expectations, but expectations which were doomed to dis- disappointment. Reminded me of uh, Philip Yangtze's book, by the way. Some of you know Philip Yangtze's book, Disappointment with God. I want to uh, commend the book to you. Written out of his own struggles and numerous people who he interviewed, people who had certain expectations of how God was going to come through for them, but it didn't happen. Some people ended up being disillusioned, disappointed with God. It's a powerful book because it also deals concretely with what God says ought to be the case in the first half of the book, then looks at real-life situations in the second part. You see, not only can we have wrong expectations, which will always be disappointed if you have wrong expectations, but we can have wrong theological thinking. And sadly, some people have sat under wrong teaching. He quotes the example of one family who believed that, uh, one church which believed, a great big church in Indiana, which believed that people should not go to the doctor for if you prayed to God, he would heal you. So you don't go anywhere near doctors. The churchyard in that church was littered with little crosses of babies who died because they never sought help from a doctor. There's all sorts of wrong expectations or wrong beliefs that we can have in our mind which can lead to disappointment and sadly can lead some people to be angry with God, bitter with God, resentful towards God. So I commend to you Philip Yangtze's book. If anyone would like to have a look at it afterwards or borrow the book, it's a brilliant, really, really important book. Chuck Swindoll, who was for many years pastor of a church in Fullerton in Southern California, uh, captured it like this, and I quote, After you've heard a few stories of disappointment, they begin to sound painfully similar. 
As I spin some records in my memory, I hear several sad songs from different voices. There are wistful echoes like this, and I quote, I'm not happy in my work. When I got the job, I never realised it would be like this. Marriage has become a drag. On our wedding day, I thought it would be so different. It's nothing like what I imagined it to be. She was once a friend of mine. I reached out to her and helped her, loved her and gave myself to her. I thought at least she would uh, respond in the same way to me. Or again, we came to this church with high hopes, expecting great things. We threw ourselves into the program without reservation. Now we're disillusioned about the whole thing. Disillusionment, disappointment, like a cracked record, the same tune keeps playing over and over in our minds, reinforcing the idea that we've been hard done by and we're entitled to be angry and hurt. How sad when we move into self-made bitterness, resentment and pessimism. What a sad tragedy that is. And how much worse when we become disappointed with God and become bitter and resentful towards him. Like the older brother in the story of the lost son, or better known, the prodigal son, when his father welcomes the reprobate home, all he can be is angry and resentful and turn away from his father. All these years I've served you, and you've never given me so much as a lamb to share with my friends. Bitterness, anger, disappointment. Now, the real issue... It's not that we have expectations, but whether they're wrong expectations or what we do with them when they're revealed. Uh, Are we going to keep playing the same side of the record, the same scenario over and over again, or are we prepared to play the flip side, to use the illustration of the vinyl record? For the flip side plays a very different tune, a very different song. The real issue uh, here, of course, and the issue in Malachi's day was the people kept playing the same tune over and over in their minds. Why is it so difficult being back in the so-called promised land? Why is it that people who do evil seem to get off scot-free? We hear this time and time again coming through in the book. If all my efforts to try and do the right thing by God reap no reward, why bother? Now, when you begin to engage in that sort of self-talk, it's hardly surprising you become spiritually cynical and then morally indifferent, say, I don't care about doing the right thing anymore. Who cares? Why bother? So Malachi's message addresses the complacency, the hypocrisy, the disillusionment, the indifference of God's people, and it's a timely word to us as well. One of the great tragedies which we observe today, the preacher in the cathedral yesterday referred to it as people who've got a bit cynical about the church, dropped out of church. There are estimates of people who've dropped out of church which are frightening because people have been disappointed in some way. Their expectations have not been realised. And tragically, they no longer meet with God's people. I learned this week, by the way, of a family, and not this week, sorry, some time ago, of a family in Sydney who have named their new son Malachi. I began wondering, I wonder what, wonder what made them choose that name for their boy. They also have a daughter, by the way, called Matilda, which reminds me of one family that chose to give all their children names starting with the same letter. 
I'm not happy so when you get when you have ten or twelve children, you'd get a bit boring after a while, wouldn't it? All with the same letter. But this family have a Malachi and they have a Matilda. Be nice to know why they chose those names. Maybe they have a particular affection for Banjo Patterson's poetry and his waltzing Matilda. But why Malachi? As I thought about this, I was reminded that in Australian folklore, Matilda is slang for the bag you throw over your shoulder when you're going to travel on foot. That's called your Matilda. Anyone know that, by the way? Grace is nodding. She knows all about this. Um, Walsy Matilda, of course, is alleged to have had its origin in the Great Shearer's Strike in 1891, which brought the colony close to civil war. Indeed, in September 1894, in a sheep station called Dagworth, north of Winton, I was listening to Macker on the phone coming down and someone rang in from Winton, way in western Queensland, terrible drought out at Winton at the moment. And some shearers turned violent during the Great Shearers' Strike and rifles and pistols were fired. They set fire to the woolshed, killing dozens of sheep. Not a happy time in the, in the rural industry in Australia. The police were called, chased one of the ringleaders, a man called Samuel Hoffmeister, who rather than be captured, shot and killed himself at the Combo waterhole. And his ghost may be heard as you walk by that billabong. Apparently that's the background to the story. Now on the other hand, maybe the family chose the, the name Matilda for their daughter by the, from the film by the same name, starring Mara Wilson and Annie DeVito, which appeared in 1996, probably more likely actually. The story of a wonderful little girl who happened to be a genius and a remarkable teacher who find themselves in conflict with the worst parents and the worst school principal imaginable. All of which has nothing to do with the sermon today, but I thought you'd be amused by it. <laughs> My messenger, Malachi, that's what the, word, the name means, and his contemporaries were in this waiting period, a long waiting period. It was the last 400 years, by the way, because there's a silent period at the end of the Old Testament until the dawn of the new Christian era, 400 years a waiting period when God seemed to have forgotten his people. Reminds me of another book by uh, Philip Yangtze called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. That's another brilliant book by Philip Yangtze. How do we trust God when he's silent, when heaven is silent? We don't have the answers to our prayers, or so it seems. A waiting period. They were experiencing poverty, foreign domination still, they were just a vassal state to the superpowers around them and uh, living under this Persian rule. And though they were back in their own land, harvests were poor, the locust plague was a problem. Is it any wonder they were becoming despondent? But the more serious disease, which is a consequence in a sense of this, is that they had taken hold of foreign influences and attitudes. And instead of acknowledging this erosion of their standards, they became defeatist and a spirit of hopelessness took hold upon them. The real indictment in this book is that they had allowed themselves to be penetrated by secular, pagan ideas. It reminded me of someone said to me some time ago, the tragedy of modern day uh, Christianity in some ways is that the church, instead of evangelising and changing the world, the world is paganising the church. That's terrible, isn't it? It's a frightening thought. More and more secular influences are pervading the Christian church. 
Can you imagine what's going on in the minds of Malachi's hearers? Nothing momentous has occurred to indicate God's presence has returned to fill the temple with glory, as Ezekiel had indicated would happen. See Ezekiel 43, verse 4. Generations were dying without seeing the promises come to fruition. Many were losing their faith. The waiting period. Now in Malachi chapter 4, we have God's final word to such people. If some of this is repetitive, then bear with me. I say repetition is a good form of teaching. Those of you who are teachers in the, the gathering, no, sometimes you have to repeat things. It takes a while to get through the concrete. Two or three or four times to start to get the message. Well, maybe we need to recognise God has to repeat things sometimes to us. And so there's quite a bit of repetition here. But here is God's answer. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace when all the evildoers will be burned up. You're worried about the wicked getting off scot-free. Well, listen. God has everything under control and they'll get what's coming to them in due course. Don't you worry about them. What about you? As Psalm 37 puts it, don't fret yourself because of evildoers. They'll be soon cut down like the grass and wither like the green herd. But you trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and God will take care of you. Don't allow yourself to be drawn off into that cynical attitudes, worrying about what God's going to do with the flagrantly wicked. Leave that up to God. He is to be trusted. He is just. Now the message of this last chapter of the Old Testament is that the day of the Lord is coming and it will mean two things. Good for us to be remembered in this season of Advent that we're not just preparing for Christmas, but Christian people ought always to be thinking about eternity. How, how long since we've had a sermon on the return of Christ? How often do we read and believe that Jesus Christ will return in glory? There will be a second coming, a second appearing. There are over 500 references to the New Testament to Jesus' return. How much does that shape our thinking and our behaviour, even as we are in this waiting time, this waiting period? Well, two things come out of the passage which I just want to briefly leave with you. I hope you can take these away with you. The first concerns the fate of the wicked, and that is certain. There is no doubt God is just. He will deal with evil wherever it is found. The fate of the wicked, verse 1. This is a reminder that the day will come when God will vindicate the godly those who have remained faithful to him, the faithful remnant who haven't been cynical, haven't been arguing with God or losing heart, God will vindicate them. So don't be deceived into thinking that godlessness and wickedness will go on forever unchecked. Don't fall into the trap of doubting the goodness of God or that he has everything under his control. This week we had in in Sydney the final service for the year for all the staff involved in the Sydney office. And the Archbishop preached on Isaiah 7. It's one of, of course, the prophetic passages about the coming of Christ. But the context is really interesting. For here in the 8th century BC, there's been uh, a political conniving going on between Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. And they have decided they're going to create a rebellion against the other powers. And they try and get the southern kingdom of Judah to join them. And the young king Ahaz, 22 years of age, what will he do? Will he join this rebellion or will he resist? Now, it's a brilliant little passage. Isaiah comes to him and he speaks to this young king, very unsure of himself. Doesn't come out of it in a very good light, but the word of God is really clear. For the word of God to him is, 
whatever else happens here, if you are not firm in your faith, will you will not stand. An incredible challenge. The word of Isaiah to the, the man is to be, uh, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let uh, that your heart faint because of these two smouldering stumps of firebrands. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not stand. Natural fact, if you read history, within two years, the both countries who fomented this rebellion were finished forever and ever. So the waiting time. How easy for us to start wanting to take things into our own hands or develop wrong and destructive ideas. If we hop back to chapter 3, verse 14, which we were looking at last week, we see the temptation to give up on God, as I've expressed it, uh, and these words come home to us. You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? What did we gain? Isn't that interesting? What did we gain? The we question. Of course, the we question is the wrong question. And all questions which are wrong questions will only lead to wrong answers. Good theological thinking prompts us to ask the right questions. When you flirt with ideas like uh, these wrong things, you have your one foot on a banana skin and you're going to be in trouble in no time at all. Being a Christian is not fundamentally about self-interest. It's not about what's in it for me. Living the Christian life is about knowing Christ and making him known. As we've said before in the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession, the whole purpose of man is to glorify God, not about me, glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we need to be alert to the dangerous aberrations which leads people in the direction of what's in it for me prosperity, theology, all other sorts of destructive things, wrong thinking, wrong beliefs, which will only lead to destruction. Now it's clear from verse 13 of chapter 3 that his people were saying harsh things against God. The Hebrew word here means stout or unyielding things or insistent things. I think this is tantamount to defiance. This is standing up against God accusing him. The verb indicates, by the way, some sort of reciprocal action going on that they've spoken to one another. You can just imagine the conversations going on at the back of the temple, complaining, moaning to one another about this waiting period. Doesn't take much brilliance to work out the sort of things that they were saying, this insistent, unyielding, stout defiance against God. They've questioned the usefulness of serving God, of remaining loyal to him, and reached the erroneous conclusion that as the evildoers are prospered, we might as well join with them. And God's reply to this mischievous logic is uncompromising. The day is coming, glowing like a furnace, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be chaff. On that day when it comes, he will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, shall leave them neither root nor branch. You be careful. If you want to join forces with them, for that's going to be the outcome, that will be the result. God will deal with things in his time, in his timetable. Indeed, what God is saying is that the day when he acts, there will be a restoration of the moral order that used to be there in the days before the exile and before the fall. 
The wicked will be punished, burnt up like wheat stubble, when set fire, when the crop is harvested. But the godly on that day will be vindicated, justified and healed. But what about those who have been taunting God? Have they allied themselves with those who are going to suffer the consequences of that rebellious, sinful attitude? So the second great theme of this passage is the call to be faithful. Like Isaiah's words to young Ahaz, the 22-year-old king, stand firm. Whatever else is true, stand firm in your trust in God. Look at verse 2. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and leap like calves released from the stall. This is a lovely agricultural image of the blessed future of the righteous who are, will rise with healing in his wings. It's, a, it's when people are going to be vindicated, healed and leap like calves, frisking around in their newfound freedom. The Greek word captures the idea of joyful, vigorous, carefree life. What a future that is to look forward to when God does make this trouble world, brings it to its completion. And if you need further motivation to stand firm in the Lord, we are told you will trample down the wicked and they will be like ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. You might not get excited about trampling people under your feet, which conjures up ideas of a stampede in a football stadium. Not a terribly exciting prospect. But imagine for a moment, no matter what your physical limitations or natural reserve, leaping like a calf released from the stall. The image is one of powerful freedom, joy, excitement, everything that we should hope for in our trust in God. What a beautiful picture of unreserved freedom as Christians will one day enjoy. Now let us not lose sight of the fact that the spiritual reality is of course being released to us now. This is not just something way off in the distant future. All the promises of God, the promises of eternal life, is life which we enter in upon in the here and now. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 says, We are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. We are God's children now. In John's Gospel, as he talks about eternal life, it is the very life which we enter into right now when we trust in Jesus and receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. We begin to experience eternal life right now. So rightly understood, we ought to anticipate and experience something of this freedom, something of this joy, something of this exhilaration if we are truly trusting God and living for him. Truly trusting God even when life hurts to quote Philip Yancey's expression. Do you find it difficult to look forward to heaven? Does the picture the Bible presents seem blurred to you? Do worldly ideas come in and create a mist and crowd out God's certain promises? Maybe the less we imagine now, if I wanted to come, the more amazing that reality will be, the more amazing I love that expression, the son of righteousness. Did you catch that expression? 
the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. From the time of the early Christians, including people like Justin Martyr in the second century, Christians have regarded the sun of righteousness as a reference to Jesus. And in many passages in the Old Testament relate uh, God to a planet or a star. Psalm 84 verse 11, we read, For the Lord God is a sun and shield, S-U-N, sun and shield. The Lord will bestow favour and honour. Or again in Isaiah 60 verse 19, The sun will no more be your light by day, nor the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. And then in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 22, verse 16, we read, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony to the churches, for I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. You know the morning star which appears in the sky, the brightest star of all? It's an image, a, a, an analogy to the one who is the son of righteousness, Reminded me of uh, that wonderful hymn by John Keeble. I can remember my father when I was a child, sit at the piano, he could only play about three hymns, my dad, but he'd sit at the piano and he used to play this hymn and then sing it. I can still remember it vividly. Son of my soul, thou saviour dear, it is not night if thou be near. O may no earthborn cloud arise to hide thee from thy servant's eyes. And then it goes on, and this lovely stanza, I've got a copy for him if anyone would like it afterwards. Um, when some uh, watch by the sick and rich the poor with blessings from thy boundless store, and every mourner sleep tonight like infant slumbers pure and night and right. And then the third stanza for anyone who is here who's not made their peace with God, listen to this. If some poor wandering child of thine has spurned today the voice divine. Now, Lord, the gracious work begin. Let them no more lie down in sin. Wonderful hymn, Son of my soul, thou saviour dear. In the 17th century, the Tsar of Russia, Peter the Great, lived in a palace full of exquisite artworks. It was just prior to the revolution, of course. But he was a believer, a God-fearing man, Whenever he saw the sunrise, he would ask why many did not awaken early enough to view one of the many glorious sights in the universe, the sun rising. They delight, he said, in gazing on a picture, the trifling work of a mortal, and at the same time neglect the one painting by the hand of the deity himself. The sun, but more particularly the sun of righteousness, will arise with healing in his wings And again in verse 5, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. That is the last word in the Old Testament, the word curse. In a sense, it was inevitable living under the law with all of its rigorous demands and the failure, the failure of human nature, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. The only result could effectively be the curse. If God's record of history was to end with Malachi, verse, chapter 4, verse 6, that would be a desperate situation. But my friends, we do not live under the curse. 
We live under the gospel of God's grace on this side of Calvary and how different God's last word to mankind is. How wonderful to rejoice as we approach Christmas that the babe of Bethlehem has become the Lord of Calvary. He's dealt with the curse, dealt with problem and how he calls us to be strong in faith and hope and love. Revelation 22 and verse 20, the last verse in the New Testament, reads as follows. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. Amen. What a different note. What a positive thing to look forward to. What an exciting climax to the whole of the scriptures. For that is God's final word to the human race, not living under the dread of the curse brought about by the sin and rebellion of Adam, No, living within the sphere of God's grace, his undeserved kindness through the cross of Calvary, through the forgiveness offered to us in Jesus Christ, the one who came to bring grace and truth. Are you living in the light of the end with that deep sense of expectancy? Are you ready to meet the Lord Jesus, the son of righteousness, when he appears? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, gracious God, for every aspect of your word. Thank you for that wonderful truth about the son of righteousness who will appear. He will come again. Help us to live in the light of that truth with a great sense of expectation, strong in faith and hope and love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.